Now it's time for the Mind Body Health Show with Dr. Marvin Trotter. Good morning. Um, thank you all for listening today. Um, I'm on the Zoom with Dr. Aaron Armstrong, a amazingly talented and well-educated cardiovascular surgeon in St. Helena. Um, it's not many people that go to Boston, San Francisco, and UC Davis. Uh, and he calls himself a full-service plumber. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, he can do your coronary artery disease and your peripheral vascular disease. And we're going to be talking about everything uh, about your heart and peripheral vascular system today. Um, so, good morning, Dr. Armstrong. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It should be fun. How did you get to Northern California? Yeah, well, uh, as you uh, mentioned earlier, I, I did go to college at Stanford after having grown up in Maine, far over on the East Coast. Uh, and then I went to, to Harvard Medical School for much of my initial medical training, but I came back here to train in cardiology and interventional cardiology and, and vascular intervention at San Francisco and, and UC Davis. I, I completed that training about 10 years ago then I actually joined the faculty at the University of Colorado, where I was for about the last 10 years. But uh, just six months ago or so, I moved back out here um, to the Adventist Health System um, based out of St. Helena, but, but covering uh, the medical services up in Mendocino County as well. Um, one of my key mentors, Dr. John Laird, uh, has oh. been out here for the last four years. And uh, we, we started talking about things about a year ago and made this plan for me to come out. He's very talented at peripheral vascular disease as well. Uh, he's done a great save on several limbs that I've sent to him. Um, yeah, so you've, you've, absolutely. you fell in love with uh, Northern California at Stanford and you've come back. Yes, that's right. I've come full circle. So um, I personally, we're going to, I'd like to talk about this and people may think this is a, you know, I've heard everything about coronary artery disease. Um, but I'll tell you that it can get personal, and it isn't uh, expected a lot of the time. You do not have to be a, a diabetic smoker to go see Dr. Armstrong in St. Helena. Uh, I personally, two years ago, started having some chest discomfort at the gym and working in the garden with my son. And um, after about the sixth or seventh time, even though I'm in good shape, I don't smoke, I'm not a diabetic, uh, I thought it might be angina. So I gave myself a stress test three days later, and the nurse kept yelling at me, it's positive, Marvin, it's positive. So I finally stopped, and it was a positive stress test, and called up uh, Monica. Uh, how do you pronounce Monica's last name again? Dr. Devakaruni. Devakaruni, Dr. Devakaruni. So she told me to come over to St. Helena, which I did, and got a cardiac cath, and I had a 99% proximal LED lesion, which is something that's really bad. It's not as bad as a Widowmaker, but it's bad. And um, fortunately, she stended me, and I've done well the last two years. So I just want everybody to realize that if you have a family history and have chest pain, um, you know, it's not uh, always this clutch in your chest and an elephant on your chest sort of thing. Um, but I'd like Dr. Armstrong to get your attention now as to, to discuss the disease processes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, that's a really good point, and I'm glad you're doing well, Marvin. That uh, really does emphasize that 
you know, family history is an important risk factor, and you can be very healthy, but the reality is that uh, heart disease and vascular disease in general is, is one of the most common killers, uh, despite uh, whatever you try to do from a lifestyle perspective. So I'm glad you gave yourself a stress test when you did. And um, I think that, uh, there, as you pointed out, there's lots of great treatments now that are really quite minimally invasive as well with a much faster recovery. I would imagine you probably stayed in the hospital at night. I just stayed overnight, uh, went in the first thing in the morning, stayed overnight, left, uh, never had a problem. It was phenomenal. That's great. Yeah, so, uh, and then, you know, broadly, you know, your point about uh, heart disease, I think, is something that a lot of people are, are familiar with because I think there has been a lot of public awareness about heart attacks and, and chest pain and, and, you know, that could be a blockage in the heart arteries. But I think what people are not as aware of in the community and, and a lot of doctors, honestly, is that the same types of blockages that happen, you know, in the heart arteries and cause a heart attack can cause significant issues in other parts of the body. Um, and one of the most common places for that to happen is in the leg arteries, uh, leading to what's called peripheral artery disease. And peripheral artery disease, when it happens, um, can lead to a number of symptoms. Um, if it has occurred over a period of time, it can cause achiness or tiredness in the legs um, so that you can't really walk well. You know, it might be if you go out shopping or try and do activities uh, you just feel an overall fatigue and and constant and frequently I, I see people you know who think this just means because they're getting older and they're slowing down and it becomes a vicious cycle because if you start being less active because your legs are tired or hurting you then you get more out of shape and less energy and uh, it just kind of creates a less and less activity as you get old and um, I have to say, some of the patients I've treated who have blockages in their leg arteries are some of the most thankful, too, because it can really change your life uh, with being able to get out and be active again. So it's something, though, that is really under-recognized as well. Lots of times people think, you know, maybe it's back pain or doctors won't test necessarily sometimes to look for blood pressures in the legs uh, to identify peripheral disease. Why don't you discuss a little bit more uh, the symptoms of claudication took me a long time to say that word, but claudication uh, is uh, is was fascinating to me as a student. And just like you said, you almost have angina of your legs. But discuss the symptoms. Yeah. So yeah, claudication really is like angina of the legs because what happens in claudication is typically there's a blockage in the leg arteries, and what that means is that when you try to walk or exercise, the muscles in your legs aren't getting enough blood flow. And that creates an achy type feeling. The most frequent type symptom that we see is the calf muscles, where they'll get kind of a burning or aching feeling. And what might happen is someone's walking, you know, uh, a few hundred yards or a few blocks, and then they get a tiredness in their calf muscle. And then at some point, that achiness gets so bad because of the lack of oxygen that you have to stop. Uh, for a period of a few minutes to be able to walk again. So it's almost like a bad Charlie horse of the calf. That's the most common uh, symptom, but the symptoms can also be a little unusual sometimes too, where like the upper leg is tired, um, or there's also variations where you can get kind of uh, tiredness in your backside as well that can be mistaken sometimes for back or hip pain actually. 
I bet that's a common thing because everybody comes in saying my back or my legs hurt, and the first, second, and third thing you think of is herniated discs and not uh, peripheral vascular disease. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, back pain and herniated discs are obviously a common cause of those kind of pains, and they should be evaluated appropriately. But I can't tell you the number of patients I've seen who, you know, had been told they had some kind of back pain that couldn't be treated. And then once we did a simple test to test for blood flow, we found they actually had blockages of their leg arteries uh, causing those symptoms. So um, what are the common tests that people do to evaluate this? Because we ought to say something about carotid arteries as well. Yeah. So for the leg arteries, the most common test uh, that's a good general test to see if you may have blockage in the leg arteries is called the ankle brachial index. It's a pretty simple test that can be performed sometimes in the office um, by a medical assistant and sometimes in a radiology lab. And what that does is it measures the blood pressure in your ankles as compared to the blood pressures in your arms. If you don't have blockages in your legs, then the blood pressure in your legs should be the same as the blood pressure in your arms. If you do have blockages, then the blood pressure becomes lower in your legs at typically 60% of what it is in the arms or somewhere in that range. And then that's a good way to identify that you likely have some blockage uh, and peripheral artery disease and may need subsequent um, specialty evaluation. So describe that again, because I think most people think, oh, if I have problems with the arteries in my legs, I have to get a dye study or some fancy sonography study. This mm -hmm. is a very simple test, like taking a blood pressure. Yeah, it is. It literally involves using a blood pressure cuff on your ankles instead of on your arms. And just like in your arms where the blood pressure can be measured, you can measure the blood pressures in the ankles too. And it, the test itself takes like about five minutes to do uh, and is a really good screening test for seeing whether there may be blockages. Now, if that test is positive, you know, then there may be a, a rationale for doing more detailed ultrasound tests to identify the blockage or possibly a CAT scan. Um, but the ankle brachial index doesn't involve any dye or contrast. It's, it's non-invasive. And so it's a good quick test to, uh, to identify whether there may be some peripheral artery disease. So um, now that we're discussing this and say people are having claudication or these cramping in their calves or thighs as an indication they're not getting enough blood supply to their legs and they go in and get this test and it shows a diminished uh, uh, reading, uh, what do you do from there? Do you, uh, I thought we always went for an angiogram at that point, but you can just do sonograms, or uh, um, what's the decision-making there? Yeah, I mean, typically if you have claudication and the ABI is, is low, then I think seeing a vascular specialist is a, is a good next step um, to evaluate what the causes are of the claudication. And there's a few things we do. One is we look at the medical therapies um, that you're taking because if you have claudication and peripheral artery disease, then everyone really should be taking a low-dose aspirin uh, and should probably be taking a medication to control cholesterol levels as well because it turns out that if you do have peripheral artery disease, your risk of having a heart attack or, or stroke is a lot higher than people without peripheral artery disease. So it's very important to optimize that medical therapy. And then typically we'll try to figure out where the blockages are so that we have some anatomic idea. And that usually will involve a more detailed uh, ultrasound type test. And in some cases, a CAT scan. 
And then it really becomes a discussion um, between the patient and the doctor about what the next best steps would be. In some patients, it's reasonable to continue a walking program where you try to walk farther and farther each day to kind of train the muscles and get some strength um, and try to break through some of the claudication pain. But in a lot of patients, if the claudication becomes very limiting and is keeping you from doing activities that you'd want to do, then that's where we may consider doing an angiogram procedure. So just to let people know that you can have uh, small vessel disease and big vessel disease, and I guess the ones that are so dramatic to me is that a friend that had uh, terrible claudication in his left calf and uh, had no blood flow below his knee, essentially. And Dr. Laird uh, stented that, and it was like Christmas had arrived. I mean, the guy was, uh, you know, it had these chronic skin changes, et cetera, you know, claudication in his calves, and he thought he could dance a jig afterwards. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it really can, you know, I think when I see a lot of patients with claudication, it's a symptom where, as I said, sometimes you start decreasing your activity and may minimize how much it's affecting your life. But frequently in patients where I do end up treating them and using angioplasty or a stent, you know, it, it completely, you know, can give you your life back and your ability to do activities. And I think if people didn't hear, um, I was told it was as high as 50%. If you have bad peripheral or, or arterial disease, there was a 50% chance you had the same thing going on in your heart. Yes, that's a, uh, absolutely true. It turns out that the overlap of heart disease and peripheral artery disease is, is very common. So if you do have peripheral artery disease, there is about a 50% chance that you may have heart disease as well. And that's one reason why, you know, really making sure you're on the right heart-related medications is important. And then frequently we'll do other taking a history and physical and uh, evaluating whether there may be some other chest pain symptoms as well to help identify that. So, since you're a full-service plumber, um, I'm going to have you discuss a little bit about angina because there's so much in the papers now about hey, how atypical uh, angina is in women. You know, everybody talks about someone clutching their chest and having an elephant and breaking out into sweat and can't breathe. And in the emergency department, I would have said half the people with heart attacks didn't have any kind of presentation like that. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that's one difficulty when we talk about the typical presentation is that that often only ends up being about half of how people actually have symptoms. So many times, as you said, I'll see patients who have severe heart disease who their main symptom may be shortness of breath where they're having you know difficulty uh, going up a few stairs uh, or they may have symptoms that um, you know are not a crushing symptom, but maybe are just kind of an overall feeling of nausea and uneasiness, uh, or maybe not being able to, to lie down in bed at night and getting short of breath. Those can all be symptoms uh, related to to angina. And it, it's true that in women, it's it's uh, less common sometimes to have crushing chest pain. The same is true if you have diabetes. You know, you may be more likely to just have some some kind of symptoms of nausea and not feeling well. So it does emphasize, I think, the importance of, of taking those symptoms seriously and getting it evaluated. So one thing in the newspapers right now is baby aspirin. And I was having a discussion with a, someone that was 72 last night about, yes, you should take your baby aspirin, because he misunderstood, I think, the latest in the news. Could you discuss 
the baby aspirin issue because that's certainly I don't want I don't want a lot of people stopping their baby aspirin suddenly. Yeah, so you know, low dose baby aspirin or eighty-one milligrams uh, is you know one of the most studied treatments for prevention of heart disease, and it's been studied across the spectrum of the general population, um, patients who are over 65 or patients who have other risk factors like diabetes. And, you know, the, uh, in looking at the overall population of everyone, um, you know, the short story is that perhaps not everybody needs to take a baby aspirin, but I think certainly I recommend to all my patients who are over the age of 60 to 65 and if they have any other kind of risk factors, that taking a low-dose aspirin is one of the most effective ways to to lower the likelihood of having a heart attack or a stroke. So I would I would definitely recommend people continuing. If you're taking a baby aspirin, keep taking it. Yes, I take a baby aspirin every day. I took mine this morning with my Crestor. Um, you know, it was discussing last night. I was trying to tell people about how platelets work and what the baby aspirin does and beaver dams. And do you have a short uh, discussion of why it's good to take a baby aspirin? Because it's true that's even good for stroke prevention. That's right. So the way aspirin works is that it slows down the platelets from getting activated. And what platelets do is they form an initial plug. So if there's all the time as the blood is flowing through your body, there's areas that are more sticky um, that, you know, maybe where there's cholesterol or calcium. And if that area gets sticky enough, the platelets will stick there. And then what they do is they activate and they release a lot of other inflammation that then brings the rest of the immune system around. And that can be important and helpful if you have a lot of bleeding going on. You want the platelets to stop the bleeding. But what happens with heart attacks and strokes is that the platelets will stick to areas of cholesterol and then basically start a clot forming there. And so the key thing with aspirin is it slows down that platelet response and it reduces the chance of a sudden clot happening in any of your arteries, including in your heart, which can lead to a heart attack, or in one of your brain arteries, which can lead to a stroke. And that's actually one reason why a baby aspirin is also recommended in patients with peripheral artery disease, because the same thing can lead to worsening blockage in your leg arteries. I try to tell people it's like once the platelets start collecting, it's sort of like a beaver dam and that you don't have to have a 90% narrowing of an artery. Uh, it can just be a rupture of a plaque or something, and all of a sudden you have a occlusion. Um, a friend of mine just had an embolic event in her left eye and is undergoing evaluation. You know, is that from a carotid artery? Is that Does she have atrial, paroxysmal atrial fib? Um, uh, could we discuss carotid arteries because we've done legs and heart, but there's a lot of people, you know, it's fascinating to me how, it really is fascinating to me how you can have somebody with triple vascular disease in their heart and have normal carotid arteries. Or you have somebody that's an athlete and looks great and comes in with a, you know, a bad carotid stroke. It's mystifying to me. Yeah, and that is part of what we still are trying to learn across the spectrum of vascular disease, why certain patients may have, you know, blockage in all three types of those areas and, and others may not. And, and you may see people who are very young who have very severe blockage in one of those areas. Um, but carotid artery disease um, is a, a frequent problem as well. And what that happens is your carotid arteries will build up plaque in your mid-neck level. 
And what can happen is because your brain and eyes are very sensitive to any decreased blood flow, if a small amount of plaque breaks off from a carotid artery blockage, that, that can lead to a, a symptom with decreased vision. Uh, the te medical term for that is called amaurosis fugax. And people call it like a shade coming down over the eye where you may have loss of vision. And that may be temporary. It could only happen for a few minutes and then that plaque clears out. But that's very important because that's a warning sign of a larger stroke that's likely to happen in the next you know, hours to days. So if you ever get a symptom like that where your vision disappears suddenly and even if it comes back, that's a good reason to go into the doctor the same day and, and maybe to the emergency room uh, to get that evaluated. Because the important thing is that if there is a severe carotid artery blockage causing a symptom like that, we have very effective treatments. Uh, that can include occasionally surgery where we'll go in and shell out the blockage but also increasingly uh, ways of putting in stents in the carotid arteries as well, which we also do at St. Helena Hospital. And that's been shown to be very effective and a minimally invasive way to prevent stroke. We're actually, we are part of a number of clinical trials at St. Helena Hospital, and one of them is a new carotid stent trial as well. So really offering some new therapies uh, to people to help uh, reduce the chance of stroke and, and treat vascular disease. Yes, a physician in town actually several months ago came in with um, left-sided weakness of their entire body and was helicoptered out and had a stent placed and did quite well. I'm, I'm shocked as um, it seems like there's not much, um, you know, I think that would be a very delicate thing to be doing because your brain is so sensitive. Yeah, certainly whenever we put in stents or do surgery on the carotid arteries, that's one of the areas where we try to be the most careful possible. And for that reason, when we do put in stents in the carotid arteries, we actually use a special type of filter basket that we put past the blockage. And that filter is up while we're putting in the stent. And what it does is it helps capture any of these tiny microscopic you know, pieces of plaque that could potentially break off. And that's been shown to reduce the chance uh, of a stroke. This new stent that I mentioned that we're part of a trial of is actually unique that it has two filters. So it's kind of a pants, uh, kind of a belt and suspenders approach as far as double protection uh, for preventing stroke. You know, the one thing, um, we're talking to Dr. Aaron Armstrong at St. Helena, who's a cardiovascular surgeon. The thing that um, I guess has amazed me over the years, uh, and you know my 30 years, is how everybody used to get their chest cracked open and had big scars, and they lined them up like cattle coming out of chutes in Dallas. Maybe that's not the appropriate term, but um, it was amazing to me that uh, Dr. Duvacaruni went up my right wrist, did this sophisticated uh, evaluation, and stented me. And I was, you know, back in my room a few hours later and went home walking the next day without any ill effects. I think the public may, well, I, I, I don't want the, I want the public to realize how sophisticated things are and that doing these studies and doing these stents can make a life-changing, uh, uh, you know, to your, uh, be life-changing and and you haven't, you know, un undergone the knife or, you know, it it's, we've come a long way in 30 years. It, it's absolutely true. I think, you know, there's 
more progress to be made even, but the, the ways that we can treat any of these vascular related issues in ways that are minimally invasive and where you can go home even in the case of treating leg arteries sometimes i actually sometimes even have people go home later the same day uh so the fact that you know you can be in the hospital for less than 24 hours uh, get the necessary treatment and the recovery as you mentioned is really quite minimal uh, there are ways that we can do these procedures now through the wrist artery so you can be getting up and walking around you know an hour or two later um, if we do a procedure through a small leg artery, we put a single stitch in. So the size of the, the hole that we make is really very tiny. Um, so there, and that makes a big difference because, you know, being able to get up and walk around and recover and get back to your life is, uh, is very important. And it's uh, much easier than, you know, the six to eight weeks of recovery that may be necessary if you, if you had to get a bigger surgery. Well, uh, just because working in the emergency room and as hospitalist, um, I want to impress upon people, having seen so many below-the-knee amputations, um, foot amputations, you know, you're diabetic, you're a smoker, um, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> Don't just assume that you can't walk because of A, B, and C. Investigate it because it makes all the difference in the world if you have a good blood flow to your leg. I don't know how to make that more um, enticing or whatever. Well, it's absolutely true. You know, we were talking earlier about claudication, where your legs may cramp after walking, but a more extreme version of peripheral artery disease is where the blood flow gets so bad that it leads to having an area on your toe that doesn't heal. And what can happen a lot of the times is, you know, you may be walking around and stub your toe and cut the skin. And if you don't have good blood flow to the area, your body can't get the oxygen there in order to heal the toe. And that then leads to an area that doesn't heal, the bone can get infected, and then that leads to the need for an amputation. So in any of these cases, um, it's very important to evaluate whether there is underlying blockage in the leg arteries, because if we can go in and treat the blockage in the leg arteries, it allows the toes to heal up and then prevents the need for any amputation. And this is very under-recognized cause um, in the community um, and even among other doctors. Um, you know, studies nationally have shown that among people who got an amputation because of decreased blood flow to their legs, only 50% of those patients had had some kind of vascular testing in the year prior. Only 50%. So, yeah, so it's extremely under-recognized, uh, you know, both by people in the community, but also, unfortunately, by a lot of physicians. So uh, it's very important if you do have an, an area of your skin that's not healing to ask your doctor, you know, whether the blood flow looks okay to that area. So um, my brother just had his uh, second toe turn black and get amputated, and he had a triple, va triple um, bypass several years ago at St. Helena. He came to visit me because uh, I wanted his... Um, his wife to get her total knee done by Dr. Garini. She had some health problems. So I said, okay, come to Ukiah. I'll take care of your health problems and have Garini do your knee. Well, my wife called up the first day I was here and said, we're walking to the sushi restaurant and your brother is leaning against the wall with his hand on his chest. And I went, what? Um, okay, uh, I'll be right there. And took him to Dr. Ploss and he had triple vessel disease 
and fortunately had an infarct, and this was, you know, several years ago. He's done well, but now he has peripheral vascular disease in his legs as well. Um, so if the listener, people are listening, this is Dr. Armstrong at St. Lena, and how would they contact you? What's the main number? Um, yeah, so they're welcome to contact me uh, anytime. I'll get you the main number for the, uh, the hospital clinic. Uh, the clinic main number is uh, area code 707-963-7200. That's Nine, the... Yeah. Yeah, nine six three seven two zero zero. That's the Heart and Vascular Institute Clinic. Uh, okay. So that's the main line. And uh, you know, if people wanted to come see me or any member of the uh, Heart and Vascular Institute, that's the the main line they could call. Okay. Well, we're ready to take uh, phone calls. If Eddie wants to turn us on here. That's right. The phone number to call in is seven zero seven eight nine five two four four eight. Okay, so um, um, you know, and um, this is—I guess—I um, had to deal the, with this almost every day, and that I went to work in the emergency department. And I want people to. to okay, we got a call. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah. <clears throat> Hi. Um, thanks for being on the air. Um, I woke up like about two weeks ago with. <laughs> almost the same thing you were talking about, but it's gone away in my calf. It was kind of hot, and it was hard to bend my knee, but then it went away. And I didn't have any exhaustion or tiredness in my leg. So um, should I be concerned, or what's your suggestion? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. So it sounds like you woke up and your calf hurt. Pretty badly, and then it and it uh, it improved. Um, you know, in that in that case, I would recommend an evaluation by your doctor. Um, you know, it could be that that was a muscle spasm, or there were some electrolytes that were off. But it's possible that you know that also could be a symptom of peripheral artery disease, um, because you know, in these cases, sometimes you can get symptoms where you get kind of a blockage that is stuttering and caused some symptoms and then got better. Um, so I, I would recommend that as, a, as part of the overall evaluation of, of, of what your symptoms were in your leg. And also I would, okay. I would have you go for a several block walk every day because um, to kind of test oh, yourself yeah. as well. But again- Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, no, I walk like three or four miles. <laughs> okay, that's a good sign. <laughs> okay, but I will look into it. Thanks so much. Thank you. So, you know, um, I guess this is a secondary question, if you want to talk about that, is the number of uh, adult onset diabetics between the pandemic and computers, I want to jump off a bridge as far as you know, the average person in the pandemic, I gained 10 pounds, the average person gained 25 pounds. Um, it is a wholesale change, I think, that we have to have about our sense of health in the country. I don't know if you want to pontificate for a moment on that, but it's it's sobering to me, especially, yeah. especially there's 10,000 new Medicare patients a day now. 
that's the, the baby boomers. There's 10,000 new Medicare patients a day, and it's a, there's a lot of pathology out there. Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, diabetes is increasingly prevalent, and it is, of course, associated with being more overweight. And I think that, you know, the pandemic really made it difficult for people to get regular exercise and, and get a healthy diet. And I think that really um, figuring out how to adjust your diet and try to have a more Mediterranean diet or a diet that's lower in fat and salt uh, is really important for your long-term health. The other thing I would point out We're going to interrupt you for a call. Pandemic. Okay, yep. we're going to give a call and then we'll get back to that. Good morning, Kelly. You're live on the air. Well, hi there. Thanks for the show. Um, so my feet and ankles seem to swell up and my feet are tingly all the time. Could that be a sign of what you're talking about? Okay, good question. Yeah, good question. Um, you know, we talked earlier about blockage in the arteries of the legs, um, but you, there are also issues of legs that can happen related to the veins. Um, and the, when you get swelling in your legs, we do a number of things to evaluate that. Uh, one is to make sure that your heart function is okay, because if your heart is not squeezing well, the fluid can back up in your legs, and that can be a symptom related to heart disease. Also, as you get older, the veins have one-way valves that help return the blood from the legs to the heart. And those veins can get leaky uh, as you age and can cause the blood to pool in your legs and cause edema or swelling. So that's another thing that we typically would evaluate uh, because there are ways that we can treat that, sometimes with compression stockings. Um, sometimes there are some minimally invasive therapies we can do to help reroute the return of, of the blood from the veins. The other symptom it sounded like you're having was some, having was some tingling. Um, tingling symptoms we often think are neuropathy where there may be some issues where the nerves uh, are you know firing and, and causing some nerve type symptoms and, and that's also important to evaluate. That can be an early sign sometimes to diabetes or other issues as well. Um, so certainly with your symptoms, I would, I would get that evaluated uh, and a, a good physical exam by a physician and a few blood tests would help uh, sort out some of those symptoms. Yeah, I have been diagnosed with diabetes too. Thank yeah. you for the question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's another one. Okay, well, thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Yes, I have a very quick question regarding the baby aspirin. Uh, it's, is that good for inflammation in general? So if you have other problems with inflammation, does that help? Thank you. Yeah, I would say in general it is. I mean, aspirin, as I mentioned, helps decrease the platelets from being activated. And inflammation in general can set off the platelets and you know be more likely to cause clotting. So um, I would say, in, in general, a small dose of aspirin will help with inflammation. Now, it's not going to help reduce symptoms of pain, um, you know, if you have arthritis or other pain-type rheumatoid inflammation symptoms. And that's where other, you know, Tylenol-based medications or other things that are more pain-related may be helpful. And uh, we interrupted you. You were going on when I had you take the other caller I forgot. oh yeah i mean the one other thing i wanted to point out with the pandemic is that you know one thing we found in in the medical community is that 
the number of people presenting with heart attacks um, to the hospital during the pandemic uh, went down 50%. And that's not because people were healthier. It's because people weren't going to the hospital. And so there has been a huge upsurge in the last year of people coming in with you know, more advanced heart problems or worse leg problems because they didn't go to the hospital when the problems first started. I just want to really emphasize to people listening the importance of going to the doctor uh, if you're having these symptoms. We have safe ways of evaluating it. Uh, and, you know, especially with these minimally invasive procedures, we can also get you in and out of the hospital quickly so you're not in the hospital for a prolonged period of time. Good morning, Carla. You're live on the air. Uh, uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for the show. I also have a question about the baby aspirin. My mother died of a stroke, and thereafter I started taking baby aspirin. And my gynecologist uh, told me to stop taking it as I reached a certain age. I'm going to be 74 tomorrow. So uh, I'm wondering, has the opinion changed about taking baby aspirin for older women? Uh, no. Actually, I would recommend restarting the baby aspirin, especially with your family history of stroke and uh, being in your 70s. So would I. No question. And I think that's where... To start, to start again? To start again? Is that yes. what you just said? Yes. We both think you oh. should start again. Oh. Okay. All right. Okay. I, I forget what, they, what the fear was. Something about advanced breast cancer or some kind of uterine cancer. I forget exactly what they said the danger was, but listening to you, it seems like it's smarter to, to take it. We don't know of any uterine or breast cancer problem with taking baby aspirin. Okay. All right. All right. I'm so glad I called in. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. You know, this does bring up the fact that I want to bring up the family residency program and primary care. <clears throat> I was trained as an internal medicine doctor. People, you know, they go get the oil changed in their car more frequently than they see the doctor. I think, you know, that there ought to be a primary care doctor that you see to discuss your cholesterol. What is your blood sugar? Do you have claudication? What, you know, are you having chest pain? So many of these things are preventable. I personally, going, you know, getting a stress test done and seeing uh, Dr. Devon Karuni saved my life. I had a terrible heart blockage. And if I hadn't gone to see somebody, I would have had a big myocardial infarction or heart attack and probably lost half my heart function. So, you know, have a relationship with a primary care doctor. And we have another call. Good morning, Kelly. You're live on the air. Good morning. Thanks for taking the call, and thanks for the great show. Um, uh, <clears throat> I was hoping uh, the doctor would also talk about, um, since you referred to him as a plumber, of what we put in our body, like what we're eating, that can clog up the arteries, the plumbing in our body, and what we can do to get um, healthier that way. Thank you so much. Your, how to keep your pipes clean. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, I think the reality is that, you know, much of what is available uh, in our Western diet uh, is what triggers a lot of heart and vascular disease. And, you know, specifically, that includes uh, foods that are, you know, high in fat and uh, foods such as a high volume of, of red meats 
and high levels of salt as well. So the, the two major types of diets that have been studied in actual clinical trials and have been shown to reduce the risk of, of heart-related events uh, are the Mediterranean diet and, and basically a plant-based diet. So a plant-based diet, of course, is pretty similar to being vegan. So that involves a lot of uh, pretty intensive lifestyle-related changes. Um, but people who do that and stick to a vegan diet, it's actually been shown that their cholesterol levels can go down pretty dramatically um, to levels you know, below the, what we call the LDL or bad cholesterol, below 70. Um, now, that may not be realistic for most people, but a Mediterranean-type diet that involves a, a small amount of red meat, but primarily focused on uh, fish, um, non-saturated fats, you know, such as using olive oil, uh, and you know, a diet that's higher in, in fruit and nuts and vegetables, uh, is associated with a lower risk of developing a heart attack, and also in people who have had heart problems has been shown to improve their long-term health as well. So those are the two diets that I recommend to people. Um, now, of course, there are many other diets and ways of eating that people try to adjust focused on weight loss, you know, with these different keto diets and whatnot. And, and losing weight is helpful, but it's only part of the picture. It's the, as you said, what we put into our body in the first place that really determines a lot of the inflammation and, and the risk of heart disease. Thank you for the call. Good morning, Carl. You're live Hello. on the air. Hello, thanks for taking my call. I haven't heard the entire show, so I'm not sure if you've covered this, but I was hoping you could talk a little bit about mitral valve prolapse because I know I have a family history of that. That's a good, oh, sure. good yeah. cardiac so, question. <laughs> yeah, so we focused today mostly on, you know, some blockages in the, the arteries, but, you know, there are also a number of other heart-related issues that can happen to the heart valves. Uh, you know, in our heart, we have four valves that help direct the blood flow through the lungs and then out to the rest of the body. The mitral valve uh, is an important valve that helps uh, as the blood is ejected forward into your body, it helps make sure it doesn't go back into your lungs. And uh, a number of things can happen to the mitral valve. One of them that you mentioned is called mitral valve prolapse, and that's where the valve may kind of tent or push back as the heart is ejecting the blood. And over time, if that prolapse gets worse, it can lead to what's called mitral regurgitation, which is a leakiness of the valve. And the symptoms of mitral regurgitation can often involve um, shortness of breath or feeling like your heart is racing. And over time, if mitral regurgitation does get worse, sometimes it has to be treated with a heart valve surgery, or there are ways nowadays that we can also treat mitral regurgitation uh, with minimally invasive techniques as well. But the key thing is, uh, if you're concerned about mitral valve prolapse or mitral regurgitation, it's, it's very easy to evaluate that non-invasively with an ultrasound of the heart. Uh, and so your doctor may recommend uh, you know, checking that on a regular basis. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Good morning, Carl. You're live on the air. Hi. Uh, I have a little information, I guess, about the last caller. Um, was talking about on the on the baby aspirin scenario. I, I don't have an opinion on this, by the way. Um, but this is from October 15th, and pretty much all the major news organizations, uh, feds from the feds, stop taking baby aspirin to prevent heart attack and stroke. 
the report says adults 60 and older should not start taking aspirin to prevent heart disease and stroke because new evidence shows the potential harms cancel out the benefits, according to the task force. The latest evidence is clear. Starting a daily aspirin regimen in people who are 60 or older to prevent a first heart attack or stroke is not recommended. Okay. Um, All right. Thank, thanks very much. Let's hear what Dr. Armstrong has to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would caution that, you know, we do have, you know, decades of research showing the benefits of aspirin uh, among people, and especially in people who are older or those who have other risk factors, including diabetes. So um, before jumping to conclusions with stopping aspirin, I think I think it's important to look at that information closer. And I, my, my opinion from looking at things so far is that for the majority of people who are taking baby aspirin, they should continue doing it. And I would not actively discourage anyone from not taking an aspirin. And I thought I thought the article mostly we're talking about people under 60 not taking an aspirin and that that I agree with that. I have a I have a pet pet thing I'd like to talk about this cardiac in nature. I, I believe that's true. Okay, it's under 60. Yeah. Um I had a yet another 40-year-old patient that was in the hospital with an ejection fraction of 20% yesterday and I'll try to tell the audience when your heart contracts 65% of the blood goes out to your body. That's your EF or ejection fracture and 65%. So this person had a third of the normal ejection fraction, 20%. And it was from methamphetamines. And people have no idea, oh, I just tweak a little meth here and I tweak a little bit there. And it gives you, I'm going to say, tiny heart attacks, BB-sized heart attacks all the time until you get this big floppy heart and you can't walk across the room because you're, you know, you get too short of breath. This is a pet peeve of mine. Would you talk about, you know, cardiomyopathy from methamphetamines for a moment? Mm. So well, any, anybody out there thinks they're just having a good time on the weekend, it's not a good deal. Well, absolutely, and thanks for bringing that up um, because there's it's a real public health problem, and I think it's something that people don't appreciate or recognize as a risk of methamphetamine. And um, there's a number of people I see on a very regular basis where this is a problem, and you know, frequently it's people in their 30s or 40s too who you know think they don't have heart disease and it's okay to do something like methamphetamine. And you described it very well. You know, methamphetamine. Basically, it can cause spasm in your heart arteries and be toxic to your heart muscle. And so it can cause a bunch of, even though you don't have blockage in your heart arteries necessarily, it can cause death to some of your heart muscle. And, and it can lead to situations where, you know, your ejection fraction or heart muscle squeeze is less than a third of what it should be. And that has serious consequences. You know, that can mean that you need to be on medications lifelong means you're going to be short of breath and not be able to do normal activities and, you know, are going to have a higher risk of dying suddenly as well. So uh, it's, uh, it's got some real consequences. Yes, and people don't realize it isn't about your electrical system works, your plumbing looks great, but you've ruined, ruined the heart muscle itself. And that's why you, you know, uh, probably don't have a long life expectancy. You know, one other valve problem that's very common is aortic stenosis. And since we have you here, a lot of people, um, uh, well, we'll take another call here first. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Hello. I'd like to ask another question about the baby aspirin, and that is that I personally have been told to take it, 
And it inspired, I mean, and shortly after, I had the first gout flare of my life. And then just doing the slightest bit of research, I found that the baby aspirin can help that happen, make that happen. And so I got off of it, and then some years later, I thought I'd try it again. I I was on it longer that time, and then I had a, a monster gout flare. And these are like two, the first two gout flares I've had in my life. Okay. Thank you very much. So I was for the wondering question. if there's another. Yeah. I wonder if there's another substance right. you might use besides baby oh, aspirin. Oh, good, for this. good point. Good point. Yeah. And well, those are good points. I think the uh, first thing I'd say is with gout, there are other medications you can take to prevent the gout flare itself. But if for some reason you think the aspirin in general does not cause gout flares, so it may have been something else going on. But there are other medications you could take instead, like uh, clopidogrel or Plavix is an alternative uh, blood thinner uh, by mouth that we, that we treat people with that can help prevent heart problems as well. Yeah, I don't, I've never seen that aspirin causing gout before. Um, you, you may be unique with that way or uh, may have just been a coincidence. Um, good question. Um, aortic stenosis? Yeah, so aortic stenosis, uh, the aortic valve is the final valve of the heart that the heart pushes against to push the blood out to the body. And it's actually a very common thing as you get older, especially over 65, where because that valve has to open and close millions of times, it can get blockages, kind of buildup of calcium and a tightening of the valve. The symptoms with that usually are shortness of breath. Uh, you may feel dizzy or lightheaded and occasionally get chest pain. It's very easy to identify aortic stenosis because um, if a doctor listens to your heart, they can usually hear a heart murmur, which then usually should lead to an ultrasound of the heart to identify it. Aortic stenosis um, used to be a surgical treatment where you'd have to get an open heart surgery to get the heart valve replaced. But about 10 to 15 years ago, uh, we developed, I didn't personally, but it was developed uh, ways of treating aortic valves that are also minimally invasive, where we actually, again, put a small tube in through the leg artery and implant a new valve. Actually, my own grandmother um, had an aortic valve minimally invasive replacement. Um, she had been told to go to hospice that she was too high risk for surgery. And um, once she had that minimally invasive replacement, she actually lived for five more years. Uh, and had a much better quality of life. So if that is something that has dramatically changed the way that we treat aortic stenosis. Um, so if you have any concern that you may have aortic valve stenosis, talk with your doctor, and there's uh, a number of good ways to treat that now. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Hi, good morning. Yeah, I would like to uh, go back to, uh, you were talking about the methamphetamine use and some problems with the heart, and I got to thinking, uh, I wondered if caffeine could have that same effect if people drink a lot of caffeine. Not that I do that, but, you know, because caffeine, I've always thought, is sort of a yeah. speedy. Okay, good question. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, caffeine is, you know, a low-level stimulant. So obviously, everyone, a lot of people drink it to, to stay awake and not be tired. The data on caffeine has been studied pretty extensively with coffee, and there's never been shown to be any definite risk of heart disease with uh, coffee intake. And, in fact, some studies have even suggested decreased risk of heart problems with uh, coffee drinking. So what I would say is that coffee appears to be safe. Now, there are some people who have other heart rhythm issues like atrial fibrillation, where your heart races. And 
it may be that drinking coffee will set that off, make your heart rate faster, cause symptoms. So um, that is an important consideration that in certain people who are very sensitive to caffeine, it may make their heart race and cause symptoms, which, you know, you should get evaluated by your doctor if you're having those kind of symptoms. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, the iron uh, levels in, in a person's blood. Uh, I, I was recently diagnosed with low iron, and I took something called Mega Food, uh, um, a blood builder, and another one is a tonic called Strong Like Ox. I got them both at Mariposa and Willits, and immediately, almost the same day, I felt a completely different tingling in my body and just started feeling better right away. And How does that play into any of the topics that uh, you two have brought up today? Okay. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, iron is a very important part of your red blood cells. It helps deliver the oxygen. So if you do have low iron levels, you will get anemic. Um, and so I'm glad to hear that you're feeling better. Um, I, I would just recommend that you should check back with your doctor and have your iron levels rechecked to make sure that they've improved over time. I'm going to bring up one other subject that I also had personal um, um, effects from. Uh, several years ago, I went into atrial fibrillation. Um, you know, it wasn't from the Dr. Pepper, but um, atrial fibrillation is a... Um, uh, your top part of your heart is going around like at 400 beats a minute, and you get a. Well, I'll, I'll let Dr. Armstrong talk about it. But again, I had a minimally invasive ablation, um, and it was phenomenal. And here, five years later, I'm on no medications for it, and, have, and it's never come back. And I just like the audience to hear about atrial fibrillation ablation because it was also miraculous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a topic close to my heart because my own dad actually had an atrial fibrillation ablation as well. So I'm probably predisposed to it too. But, um, you know, atrial fibrillation is an electrical issue where the top part of your heart uh, is beating very fast, like 400 beats a minute. There's a control system in your heart to make sure that the bottom part of your heart doesn't beat too fast. Uh, but what can frequently happen is that it will still start beating 100, 120 beats a minute. So people who have atrial fibrillation may get shorter breath, have a feeling of palpitations or your heart racing. And there's a number of ways to treat atrial fibrillation. Um, that can include slowing down the heart rate or trying to stay into a normal rhythm. But the other important thing to know is that if you have atrial fibrillation, there's also a higher risk of stroke because the abnormal beating of the top part of the heart can predispose to blood clot formation. So um, these days, if, you, if your body is in atrial fibrillation, it's important to take some other blood thinners. Um, but there are also ways uh, to actually treat the atrial fibrillation and, and basically get rid of it. And those are also minimally invasive therapies that are catheter-based with a small tube, usually in the leg vein. and. This is kind of amazing, but what you can do is go inside the heart with these catheters and map out where the electrical action is coming from and actually specifically zap those areas and stop the atrial fibrillation, which then allows your heart to go back into a normal heart beating rhythm. So that's a procedure that we do here at St. Helena Hospital as well, and we have a lot of success. We actually are probably one of the more nationally known or recognized hospitals for treating atrial fibrillation. And, you know, I took the drugs for a while. Somehow working in the emergency room at night uh, was not always effective, you know, at 3 a.m. 
the uh, meds didn't always work that right, that well. <clears throat> and then I started taking a couple of meds by myself without talking to the cardiologist, and he told me I was going to get uh, uh, tersades and not to do that. So then I read that the older you are, the less likely the ablation, you know, is effective. So I went and had it done and was shocked at, again, uh, the next, you know, the same day I went home and I've never had a uh, palpitation irregular rhythm since. That's great. We only have one or two minutes left. I'd like you to identify yourself and if you want to talk to Dr. Armstrong about cardiology, 963-7200, 963-7200 is the St. Lena main number for the Cardiovascular Institute, which sees a lot of people. Um, thank you very much for the show, Dr. Armstrong. We've run out of time. It was an informative show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.